and welcome to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I am Leah Heigl and I'm here with my co-host Aidan Muir and today we're tackling a bit of a controversial question and is that are national dietary guidelines contributing to obesity? So we are going to be mainly focused on the Australian dietary guidelines here but there's going to be some mention of the American national guidelines as well because it's an important part of the overall narrative that we're going to be telling but it's clearly a a super complex topic we're going to try to cover it to the best of our ability with the time that we have and and see how we go so starting off with the simple stuff so the definition of obesity so the definition of obesity is bmi greater than 30 and obviously there are flaws in bmi that's just the metrics that's used for these stats so that's the metric we'll go with um Based on that definition, close to 30% of Australians fit that criteria for obesity. For comparison, around 36% of Americans do. And for going with the timeline of have obesity rates changed over time alongside the dietary guidelines, we obviously have to answer the question, have obesity rates changed? Um, Since 1995, they have increased quite a bit. So they were 19.1% in Australia, as I mentioned before, 30% now. And then we've got to ask the question, like, how did the dietary guidelines fit in with this timeline? So the US dietary guidelines were released in 1980 and the Australian ones were 1982. Um, There's been a lot of charts. I don't think anyone these days is really on Twitter, but I'm on Twitter and (laughs) I see see these kind of charts everywhere. Um, And obviously I've got a visual in front of me that I don't know if I can communicate well over a podcast. But basically the chart shows obesity rates or the percentage of the population that are overweight slash obese, so BMI 25 or above. Um, Starting in 1960, so there was around 45% of people were overweight or obese. um, Whereas by 2007, it was about 73%. So it's a pretty significant increase over that time. But this chart showed 45% in 1960. And then there's a very slow increase to about 20 years later, 1980, it was still under 50%. And then 1980, dietary guidelines released and it just takes off and it's like this massive upswing until around that um, almost 75% number from about 2007 onwards. And that chart looks very compelling, but... There are other ways you can look at it as well. I've seen other people try and make fun of this chart by saying, like, instead of, like, putting a thing there saying, like, dietary guidelines release, there was somebody put a chart that was, like, Atkins diet became popularised, like, the (laughs) low-carb diet, and then, like, a timeline of, like, other stuff alongside it. Like, just being, like, you can make the chart, like, look like other things cause this. Um, And then the other obvious questions that go alongside this is it's, like, okay, the dietary guidelines were released around there when the spike increased. But were there other aspects that changed at that time? For example, did did it become more easy to be more sedentary around that time? Did we get more access to higher calorie food? Was there changes in food advertising, access to food? Like there's so many things that we can consider alongside that. So even though that chart exists and looks compelling, there's so many other questions that come alongside that to be considered too. Absolutely. And you kind of wonder why, I mean... I guess the governments were like, let's make these dietary guidelines. Like, were there things occurring that they're like, yeah, this is going to maybe impact people's intake? And then they decided to put these guidelines in. Obviously, maybe not had the uh, 
the best impact looking at this graph. Like this graph's crazy. Like it looks yeah. so compelling when you look at it. Yeah. And then you think about all the other stuff that could be coming into play and you're like, ah, oh, okay, maybe not so compelling. Mm. Um, so let's take a look at some of the criticisms just generally surrounding the guidelines. So the major criticism that we wanted to chat about is just this kind of focus on low fat. Um, that was very much the basis of those original guidelines released in the 80s, both in America and in Australia. And people kind of criticized this in saying that, well, you know, this may have led to an increase in carb intake because everyone was trying to be really low fat. So did everyone then just increase their intake of these carb-based foods and did that have an impact on obesity percentages? Um, it's worth noting that the current Australian dietary guidelines do not have this like huge focus on limiting total fat intake. They Instead, they say just limit saturated fat intake, which I think anyone could agree that saturated fat intake probably don't want too much of. Um, we do have this separate, whilst it's not part of the guidelines, we have this separate acceptable macronutrient distribution range. And that states that 20 to 35% of total calories should be coming from fat. Um, and that's the government advice that we have at the moment around fat intake. So not necessarily low, like 20 to 35% of your calories coming from fat is a decent amount. Um, so again, they're not part of the, the guidelines now, but one of those early criticisms of those first ones was around that low fat approach. Um, some other criticisms would be the high amount of dairy. So again, vegans like love to point this yeah. one out. Um, so the guidelines kind of state that adults should be consuming 2.5 to 4 serves of calcium-rich food per day. And then within that group, there is quite a lot of dairy products that are recommended. I think it's important to note that you don't have to have dairy to meet these requirements. Yeah, like you can have or alternatives. Or alternatives, yeah. So in Australia, a lot of us get a lot of our calcium through dairy. So it makes sense that the guidelines would have this focus on things that we're already doing and then just kind of slightly pulling that up to where we need it to be. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not just dairy that you can get these calcium foods from, it's other foods as well. Um, the guidelines do also mention this kind of focus on reduced fat dairy. So a lot of people are like, well, if you have a ton of high fat dairy, is that not going to make the chance of weight gain worse? But the guidelines do state that you should get most of your dairy from reduced fat sources. Um, and then third thing would be the high amount of whole grains recommended as part of the dietary guidelines as something that is often criticized. And this one I don't typically understand just because I don't feel like it is a very high amount of whole grains like from where I'm coming from. So it typically recommends, well, it recommends four to six serves per day, depending on what age group you're in and then one serve is equal to one slice of whole grain bread so it could be as simple as like having like half a cup of cooked porridge for breakfast a sandwich for lunch and a cup of cooked pasta for dinner that would be your five serves I don't think that is a whole ton of yeah. food I'll, I'll like paint a picture for like people who like would be on the other side of the debate and like trying to like cherry pick to make it yeah. look bad um with the whole grains like 
the way you could cherry pick it is by saying six serves per day, this is the equivalent of six slices of bread per day. The government's telling us to have six slices of bread per day. <laughs> well, when you put it like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like it's, <laughs> yeah, it's real true. cherry picked, but like you can say. <laughs> and then the same thing with the with the dairy where it's like 2.5 to 4, where the 4 is above a certain age or whatever. Yeah. Like you could picture like a 75-year-old grandma and being like, well, four serves is the equivalent of a litre of milk. Are you telling me that grandma should be having a litre of, a milk. Liter of milk per day? Like yeah. you can make it sound quite bad when you... Word when you're like using that. like that one food, but like yeah. if you're if you're gonna get yeah four serves of dairy, it could be like a cup of skim milk in your morning coffee. It could be a good serve of yogurt as yeah. a snack, some cheese on your dinner, yeah. and you're like you're getting there. And then it's, it's very different. That doesn't sound that wild. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so the next part, I guess, we'll look at is like if the criticism is that dietary guidelines are contributing to obesity. Does anybody actually follow the guidelines to start off with? Like it would have to be suggesting that the guidelines are influencing our intake. Um, so the first counter argument that I would have is that the average person doesn't know the guidelines well, <laughs> like, which like makes sense to me. Like I, I, like, I don't know. It, it's, a, it's a very boring topic. Um, I obviously was looking through it earlier and it's literally 226 pages long. <laughs> And it, it's, it's a hard statement to be like, oh, yeah, the average person has dramatically changed their intake when we don't really know the guidelines. Like maybe you could say that, like, say the food pyramid or something like that, like people have seen the food pyramid and seen that carbs are at the bottom and that's influenced their thinking or they've seen the recommendations for low fat. Like you could say that, but like as, as a whole, like not many people really know the guidelines. Um, inside that as well, there are a lot of recommendations like limit intake of foods containing added salt or limit intake of foods containing added sugar. And those pieces of advice are very clearly not followed closely at a population level. The population, on average, has a relatively high salt intake and a relatively high added sugar intake. Um, it's very much cherry-picking to say that um, we've listened to the low-fat piece of the guidelines and that's led to us increasing our sugar intake. It's like, well, the guidelines have always said from the first iteration, limit added sugar as well. And then the other one, like a standard piece of advice everyone's aware of is eat two serves of fruit and five serves of vegetables. And technically for guys, if we go with that eat for health kind of serves, like it's actually six serves for guys, so it's even higher of vegetables. Um, <clears throat> eat two serves and five serves of vegetables, though. Statistically speaking, less than 6% of Australians meet that recommendation. And that's the one that I always point to because I'm like, well, if only 6% of Australians are doing that one aspect of the guidelines – what percentage of people are doing anything that remotely follows the guidelines in any way, shape or form? Um, and then the final thing about like how much the dietary guidelines influence these things is something I was looking at earlier today is that when you look at the dietary guidelines between countries, they're often very similar. There is a lot of overlap between them. If you got up each country's equivalent of the food pyramid or their healthy plate or whatever variation they do, they all look incredibly similar. There's only a few small differences between them. But obesity rates are significantly different between countries. An example, and I'm obviously cherry-picking the most extreme examples, but the guidelines of South Korea and Qatar are very similar. But South Korea has an obesity rate between 1.5 and 4%, depending on which stats you look at, whereas Qatar is just above 40%. They both have very similar guidelines, but very different obesity Drastically rates. Drastically different. Yeah. So a few points to summarise, I suppose, our defence of the guidelines. The first one is like 
Well, who are the guidelines actually designed for? So they're for healthy individuals without medical conditions or in situations that require any kind of individualization. So it's really for the general population that don't have any like other confounding variables in regards to their medical history. So I think one thing that that it, it often gets left out of the discussion is the fact that it, it is for those people. It's not for people with diabetes. Like, yeah. for example, is one aspect I see brought up all the time in terms of like, isn't that a lot of grain-based foods for yeah. someone with diabetes? And like, yeah, it could be. It's not for them. There, there's a <laughs> saying that I hear a lot is that the guidelines are making us fatter and sicker. Like a lot of people in that crowd will say that yeah. saying. And I'm like, well, they can't be making us sicker. Because you shouldn't have for. been sick and following <laughs> yeah, them. Like you might yeah. need more individualized advice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another aspect of the guidelines is that they do actually contain physical activity recommendations. And that is aiming for at least 30 minutes of exercise on most, if not all days. There are a lot of people not doing that. So if you're following the guidelines and you're very sedentary, you're not meeting that minimum amount of exercise then probably not for you either. Like you do need to be doing that component with the rest of the stuff, um, in which case maybe your your intake should be reduced slightly from the guidelines because you're not meeting that particular part of the guideline. The guidelines, as you said, have always recommended limiting added sugar. So when they're telling us to consume more grains, they don't necessarily mean things like Cocoa Pops. Um, it, it is mainly whole grains that don't have a lot of added sugar. That's always been a part of those guidelines. So in Australia, a third of our calories or even over a third of our calories come from discretionary foods. So these are kind of like the highly processed junk, quote unquote, junk foods. I always do this under the table thinking people yeah. can see me like the quote unquote, <laughs> the people that can't see me. Um, so that's part of the uh, guidelines as well in terms of limiting your discretionary intake. Like totally, if you were to take the guidelines, do 100% of kind of the food group stuff, get in all of that, but you're still consuming that high quantity of discretionary foods, yeah, you probably will gain weight because that's going to be a whole lot more calories than the guidelines recommend. So it's not just this assumption that you add in all these foods and you, you're not replacing it, you're some of the discretionary foods you were having with these other foods. Yeah, I think that's actually part of the criticism that a lot of people have. It's not really factoring that in in terms of like a lot of people see what is perceived as a high amount of whole grains and a high amount of dairy, but then are also not factoring in the stuff that is consumed that is not part of the guidelines and how that affects calorie intake. Even alcohol is another factor in this being like totally. alcohol is limited in the guidelines. It doesn't say don't drink alcohol. It does say limit them, but it's like... If you drink every weekend, for example, that would reduce the amount of room you have for whole grains and dairy and stuff during the week as well. Yeah, because even going back to your like your crazy examples that we're using with like if you were to drink a liter of skim milk a day and yeah. six pieces of whole grain bread, that actually doesn't sound crazy if you were eating very minimal processed foods. Yeah, exactly. But on yeah. top of processed foods, sure, that, that sounds a bit crazy and wacky. Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree with everything from the defense of the dietary guidelines. I want to I want to go and do I guess what I call a balanced perspective, trying to be like, well, what's the other end of the spectrum that people Absolutely. are arguing and stuff as well, and go somewhere in the middle there. So the first question that I really think is something worth thinking about, but does it make sense that our guidelines are designed for people who are healthy and fit and exercising thirty plus minutes per day 
when that description doesn't fit our population. Like, I don't think that's really a criticism I have, but it's more being like a lot of the criticisms that people have stems from people assessing the quality of the guidelines for situations they're not really designed for. Um, then often thinking about it for people who are relatively sedentary or people who do have medical conditions and stuff like that when the guidelines are designed for people who are healthy and doing quite a lot of exercise as well. Um, which leads into the next point about higher carbohydrate intake. Like there is a bit of an emphasis on higher carbohydrate intake, but in the context of an active lifestyle, mm-hmm. that fits a lot better than it does in the context of an inactive lifestyle. Um, another point that's worth acknowledging is that consumer trends particularly did switch um, in the 80s towards wanting lower fat products and that led to a lot of companies reducing the fat content of their products and you could also say increasing the sugar content or the refined carbohydrate content as well. A lot of people who claim guidelines led to obesity claim that this change was due to the guidelines but once again that leads to the question of Consumers, yes, they did kind of want this, but was that because of the guidelines or was that because of other reasons? I personally lean towards it being for other reasons. Yeah. Like sugar wasn't the thing that was demonized just yet. It was fat. Yeah. So people were like cutting all the fat out of their diet and eating sugar instead because they, we hadn't made the link yet so much with sugar intake and overweight. Yeah. Or obesity. Yeah, for sure. There's even, there's an episode of Seinfeld that I always point to that, um, they were eating like low fat yogurt or whatever. And they're like, it has no fat. It's not possible for me to gain weight. And like the like plot twist is they get it tested and it does contain fat. Like it's still like that gets to the end of the episode and it's like still about fat. Like it's, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, something that I, w- I was talking about with you earlier off, off air was um, that the guidelines actually do specifically mention that they are still relevant for people who are overweight as well, as if they are a... Um, a solution that would be useful for weight loss as well, which is a point that I wouldn't say I necessarily disagree with, but from another perspective, during a fat loss phase, I'd almost never put somebody on an approach that was in line with the dietary guidelines, if that makes sense. Like I typically would reduce the carbohydrate content and increase the protein content in some way, shape or form, Um, even if it's just for the purpose of maintaining as much muscle throughout the process. Maybe from an appetite perspective, there is a bunch of reasons why I'd look at doing that. Um, But I found that interesting because like, as, as we were both saying to each other, we kind of assumed that the dietary guidelines had always said that they were for people who were yeah. in the healthy range, um, which I don't know, is just an interesting point. Because to me, like the like the, the guidelines generally, they kind of are uh, this like sustainable approach that you follow for your whole life. Yeah. And then a fat loss phase, if you're wanting to lose fat because yeah. you're overweight, would not be that approach you follow for your whole life. Although I, I think like underlying, it makes sense to use some of the dietary guidelines approaches in terms of like obviously fruit and veg intake yeah. and low discretionary foods. But yeah, I had assumed the the same thing. Yeah. Cause I, I very much see it as something that is useful for chronic disease prevention more yeah. so than body composition manipulation. Absolutely. And then the last thing is that most people argue that the guidelines are harmful are also trying to build a case for the low carb diet. Cause it comes from a few angles being like, well, it's a higher carb diet. But it also demonizes, quote unquote, like low fat, sorry, demonizes high fat dairy and stuff like Mm. that, supposedly. Um, And just like wrapping up on that topic being like, if the argument is low carb versus low fat diets for weight management, that is a topic that has been studied pretty extensively, both in controlled situations and in real world situations, which is really useful as well, showing that under both circumstances, 
both options work equally well. So not only is it that when the calories are matched in both groups, they get the same results. In the real world, it also does not seem like it matters that much about which one you choose in terms of if they, if people get large sample sizes and they split people into each group, both groups seem to get very similar results, which is useful, but I would even wager that the results would be even better with personal preference and choosing the approach that suits your lifestyle the most. So in summary, um, I think obesity is definitely multifactorial. Like we can't say that the guidelines have equated to this increase in obesity rates. I think that's a very blanket oversimplification of everything that has changed in the last, what, 40, 50 years. Yeah. Um, we know a lot in our lives has changed since then, even just thinking about technology yeah. and let's our- actually, let's actually touch on that for a second. Okay. Like, Cause um, yeah, I've seen other people talk about that and um, like, like what has changed, like firstly um, measures of calorie intake over the years has shown a small increase in calorie intake. Yeah. It's not as much as you'd probably expect it's not as much as I expected but it is an increase in in calorie intake or reported calorie intake but then there's also a significant decrease in energy expenditure so say Mm -hmm. I I don't quote me on these numbers but this is from memory say there's like a 200 to 300 increase in calorie intake per day but then like a 300 to 400 decrease in energy expenditure because of technology because of like even kids playing less outside like people having jobs where they used to do manual labor but now it can be automated and stuff like that and the combination of both those, not just dietary, but also the energy expenditure portion of it is a big factor in all of this. Yeah, I'd say that's definitely got way more to do it with it than yeah. any like any of the dietary guidelines, which we know most people are not following anyway. Like we were talking before yeah. we even started, like I'm like, I don't understand how this is an argument or a discussion that's happening when people don't even know what the guidelines are, let alone are following them. Yeah. And just generally, like we don't, I mean, I don't go out of my way to actively promote the Australian dietary yeah. guidelines. Sure, they form a small amount of like my underlying practice and I do know of them um but it's not something that I'll hand someone like an Australian dietary guidelines sheet and say do this um it's always obviously a personalized approach that I think is going to be much better on an individual basis um but I think the biggest thing to acknowledge is that the guidelines are meant to be followed in their entirety if you're just taking little bits and pieces and popping them on top of your current diet yeah that may cause some issue this has been episode 64 of the ideal nutrition podcast if you could leave a rating or review that would be greatly appreciated as always but otherwise thanks for tuning in